Welcome everyone to the Super Duper Music Podcast. This is Stephen Walter and with me is Matthias Halvorsen. Hi Matthias. Hi there Stephen. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm sitting in a little bit too cold hotel room in Hamburg and I'm a little uh, freezing. How are you? How are you doing? Yeah, it's it's a time of year where things get really tiring and you're really hoping that uh, it gets to the end. At least I feel like that. It's been a it's been a crazy long year and about time for holidays, right? Holidays. It's such a beautiful word. Holidays. Holly. I like it. What's up in the world of classical music? Uh, not much, it assumes, but I assume. But uh, what um, do you have any news? Yeah, I do. I do. Very exciting. I think lot, lots of stuff going on all the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We were just before we recording. We were just grappling about shitty news, but we'll, we we're compensating. Yeah, no, but it's not. It's not shitty. This is actually. Um, I think this is this is a, a nice thing. So, just now uh, on on the seventh of def- December, um, the British Composer Awards 2016's winners were revealed. That was a hard thing to say. Yeah. Um, and. It's a few very interesting. It's a lot of over seventy percent are first time receivers, which is very cool. That means there's a lot of like a lot of young people are given given attention, and which I think is a nice thing because it's it's from the market in general. So it's not a thing people send in pieces for, but it's more awarded for things you do. And then one prize that I found very very funny was for the first time two prizes were giving for lifetime achievements. Basically, for being who you are, for all the other ones, and they were giving two. There was one, the the British Composer Award for Inspiration, which was given to Simon Bainbridge, and then the other one, the British Composer Award for Innovation, was given to Jennifer Walsh, and uh, she is a very very cool character. <laughs> she is um, I don't know how to describe her. She does really her own things like um. One of the most the things she were is the most famous for is a huge piece where she used Snapchat uh-huh. and sent out the yeah basically the scores via Snapchat and thus created these kind of pieces of music that where the score only existed for like five seconds and then was gone. Okay. <laughs> and she did like many uh, projects like this and yeah she also wrote a lot of things about how she does things. She's very into like music philosophy and performance philosophy. She works. She thinks often the, the um, composer more as a director or as an yeah. So it was very interesting to 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 see that somebody this cool gets a, this prize. But I mean, new music um, crowd is often quite quite uh, quirky, cool already. So <laughs> yeah, quirky and cool. I think we <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, what what is the uh, what's the inspiration award like? What's the difference between like what is an insp- what it's just some random inspiring person that gets an award for being inspiring. Yeah, I guess he he does inspiring stuff then. Okay. And innovation, he does innovative stuff. Yeah, she does innovating stuff. Okay. I mean, she she summed up her approach in a in a small essay called The New Discipline. This is the new discipline, which is the title of the thing and and she uses it to to describe her approach a little bit. I think she didn't do it before, so it's not she didn't create this as a she she did not create this the new discipline as a formative kind of thing. It's more to talk uh, a tool to talk about her approach. I think not in a non-systematic way. So 
so from her essay, quote, This is the new discipline, the rigor of finding, learning and developing new compositional and performative tools, how to locate a psychological node which produces a very specific sound, how to notate tiny head movements alongside complex bow maneuvers, how to train your body so that you can run 10 circuits of the performance space before the piece begins, how to make and maintain sexualized eye contact with audience members while <laughs> manipulating electronics, how to dissolve the concept of a single author and work collectively, how to dissolve the normal concept of what a composition is. I, I like the sexual eye contact thing. Yeah, it is. But isn't this nice? This is I I, I love this. Yeah, it speaks very strongly to me. It it feels a little bit like um, yeah. No, it, it I I I I love it. it's a very interesting uh, field. Also, this working col collectively within classical music is always a, a tricky thing. Mm. Yeah, because um, we always tend to to um, create these hierarchies, either small or big. Also, when rehearsing, that that you kind of give different people different weights depending. Is at least my experience that people take to, tend to even think in hierarchy when it comes to skill levels or or whatever. Yeah, it's, I mean it's deeply engraved ingrained in the uh, in in the way things work in general. So it's it's quite a um, mind shift to to actually really work collectively. But this the sexual eye contact thing ties in uh, very nicely with my news item. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> because it it's a. Actually, I won't give it to you, uh, literally. But um, I, I, so this is it. It's actually an, an old story, but that has been had this boiled boiled up again. Um, uh, you, you know the composer Georg Friedrich Haas, right? Oh, that stuff. That stuff exactly. And <laughs> uh, so Georg Friedrich Haas is a actually very well known Austrian composer who is. Uh, quite a leading figure in the contemporary music scene. He writes this microtonal, very, um, yeah, very, quite powerful music, I think. Anyway, he in, in back in February, he came out in a big uh, story on Fun Magazine and then all over, nearly all over the media, uh, as being, a, as it were, a kinky person. Um <laughs> Yeah, but he was very open about it. He's so very open why. about it. So, so, so he's uh, so-called. Um, so his sexual practices referred as BDSM, bondage, discipline, dominance, and submission, sadoma sadomasochism. So it's a uh, that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, um, it, it, it for, for some reason it's it, and I, I was following it back then because people got really. Um, you know, it was sort of a, obviously a, it's a, a gossipy topic for one thing. And, and, but also it was just interesting to see how extreme the reactions were because, because many people are very, very, um, engrossed and, uh, find it absolutely inappropriate, inappropriate for somebody, uh, any public figure or anybody really to, to show that or to talk about that or to be, um, yeah, to be be that open and in your face about it, because there has been picture campaigns and stuff like that. So he's been really open about it. But also said that it's been a big issue for him for ten, uh, decades, um, to not be open about this sexual inclination. Anyway, so so uh, on this uh, popular music blog slipped disc, 
by Norman Lebrecht there's another post about some this was the other week uh, about some some picture he made for some calendar which shows him will link to it shows him and her he has this so he has this um submissive uh uh wife or lady um friend or <laughs> whatever it is um to um um, and so, so and they they have a they have a series of quite explicit pictures, and and old Norman Leprecht, the blogger, is uh, seemingly pretty tired about it. So he writes, um, blah blah blah. Quote: It has quite it has been quite a media campaign, starting with the New York Times onto the London London Times and today in the Daily Mail. Perhaps it's time to let the music speak for itself? Question <laughs> mark. So that uh, so so he seems to be, and he has very he's very influential, and like hundreds of thousands of people were reading this, and there's like over two hundred comments below that post. And it's very interesting to read, particularly the comment section, because people are very, um, yeah, uh, this is very uh, loud debate. And people saying, like one guy saying, like, just because somebody's talking about his sickness doesn't make him healthy again or something like that. Like really, really harsh, yeah, harsh stuff. And and actually, and sadly, uh, predominantly quite, um, quite negative, which I think is, is alarming. But I'm just wondering if that's a thing on these comment pages in general. Like I, when I'm looking through the comment pages on, on Slipdisk, I'm always... I mean, it's hard to stop looking because mm. <laughs> because of how people are. But in general, I I, I <laughs> I'm really scared. I don't. I'm not the. I'm not a. I don't look or write at these comment um, like on on these uh, threads normally at all. So I'm not used to the kind of yeah. But all the people exactly and the aggressions, the 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 outright hatred that is uh, displayed there, and, and we're talking about a classical music blog. You know, you would think yeah, exactly. People are more cultured or something. Uh, I mean, that's the general claim, but um, it's it's quite quite terrible. And then actually, the cool thing, this Molina, which is his, I think it's his wife. Anyway, his uh, partner Molina Lee Williams Haas. So yeah, it must be his wife. Because somebody was asking what what this is and why and so, so, so and she's writing quote, it's a calendar published specifically to counter the shite attitudes displayed by the writer of this blog and many of his fans. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so um, so that, that that's 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 uh, for, uh, for lack of better news. That's um, the this week's uh my this week's thing I, I encountered and it is really interesting you guys should read the uh, read the story and read the read the the comments because it's a it's also referring a lot to music and how that is um how that may be uh, influential on, on on like sexuality and music and stuff like that which is a, a thing one doesn't really think about but it's it is interesting and this one thing that Mr. Haas has been writing, which I find myself slightly disturbing. So, uh, quote, S&M means sex and magic. It actually means sadomasochism, but he writes, S&M means sex and magic. It's the magic of voluntary submission. As the composer, I was the master, and the interpreters were my slaves. They had submitted themselves voluntarily to my score. They had to do things 
that were completely meaningless, but they did them with absolute precision. It's like a sadomasochistic ritual where the submissive partner has to do something without knowing the reason why. The emotional effect comes from the naked act of submission, which contains an almost spiritual energy, unquote. I think that's kind of a, a funky, funky statement for a composer who seemingly, I don't know, if maybe this is a joke, I don't know, but seemingly uh, that has some link to his music, which... Um, I don't think it's a joke. I, I read the full article, I remember, when he, he it was out for the first time. I think it's... Uh, again, I think it's, it's, uh, it's great. He points out something there that we, we often don't really think about we always explain like we really display this blind trust always to the score where you don't necessarily always build the meaning from there but rather refer to what it says and then rather do that you know mm. I there's a really interesting um twist like to think that that may be some subconscious or not even so subconscious um yeah dynamic going on there Okay, shall we move on? I have a technology. Yes. This time it's my turn. Stephen did such a wonderful job on his his uh, his blockchain uh, segment, so I will try to lift lift the lift the barrier, Matthias. No, I cannot lift the barrier. Okay, so so music and technology can be so many things, and and uh, it's actually um, more of a tight relationship than we would would think of it's completely interwoven um, often just because the instruments themselves are technical by their very nature and of course as a pianist I'm very aware of that fact and that's why I've chosen an old technology which is kind of piano related it's like the ultimate nerd technology so I'm gonna try <laughs> try to explain uh, how a self-playing piano works so the inspiration for this came a little bit also from this West world, which you might have seen, but there is featured very much this pneumatic piano, self-playing piano. And um, I always wondered how it works. So you've probably seen it sometimes. It looks like a, an upright piano, which has this kind of open uh, window in the front where there's a, a paper roll, scroll kind of going through and it has all these holes in it. Yeah, right. That's an old thing, right? Yeah, it's like over 100 years old. Yeah, it's pretty much exactly 100 years old. So you had, uh, like, the golden age of that was from, like, 1901 to 1920, and then it kind of stabilized. So that was the golden age of the self-playing piano. And the self-playing piano was this thing where it was, like, an or early alternative to performance, where it's, like, a mix between a live performance and a recorded performance. But they used it very much as recordings. So they would have famous pianists or uh, show tune writers record the songs on the piano and they would record the music onto these paper rolls so that people could have the live performance in their home later. And then when you put the paper roll in, the keys go down and the piano plays themselves, plays itself, kind of. So. Mm -hmm. That's very funny. That's super cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And then one thing that's also very funny is that they incorporated elements and technical elements where... You could sit in front of the piano while this performance was going on, going on, and you could change the speed slightly and the volume, and you could also change kind of the phrasing, like you could really go up and down, like do very fine things to the music. So that, I think it's very funny. Like also timing things, you could make rubatos with like a stick that you had like next. Cool. So, 
so you can you can actually make it kind of a yeah a interpretation of it right? yeah exactly you can you can affect the performance then of these things so it ends up being this weird in between animal like what is this this uh, this thing so I'm gonna try to explain it so first in a piano like it's a it's a um, yeah, it's pneumatic. That means that it's a kind of a, a air-driven mechanism. And uh, so you have these, uh, like over the pedals, when you want to use the self-playing mechanism, there comes comes these two like air pumps. I don't know if you ever tried one of these old kind of harmoniums or small organs where you have to pump yourself. So it's a mechanism like that where you continuously have to pump. And that pump drives the engine which is like a kind of it's one of when you see it it looks like one of these it has this several like it's a very even even system with with several uh, holders that kind of make sure that the the flow of the paper rolls goes very even it also works with so it it, it works this paper roll that then starts moving over a set of all tiny 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 holes that's like it's like a it's a, like a bar with all these holes that lead back into a small motor that is connected to every single key of the piano. So every hole represents one key, and when the paper starts moving over this hole, like moving, and the piano starts working, there is suction created inside every single small motor. So it so through this hole, when the hole is blocked from the blocked with paper, so when there's no hole in the paper creates the suction where a part of the engine on the inside it's like a f kind of a, a filter or like a, it's like a skin covered small valve that goes in so it's 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 vacuum created there through the use of the motor and then once there comes a hole this expands of course and and uh, then it's a small stick <laughs> that's placed over this valve that that uh, goes upwards and drive the hammers forward into the string did you get it? I so got it's like, it. That's why. So every time there's a hole in the paper, there comes air through, and then the hammer moves up. So it's kind of the opposite of what I thought it would be. I thought it would be like some physical thing. No, it's on. actually it's a purely uh, mechanical or air air power driven thing, right? Yeah. No so it's completely air powered. And this I thought was really great. And that's the whole thing. That's super cool. I think it's very cool. I it like was it. very simple. I thought it was very complicated. But uh, it's actually pretty, pretty much fun. Yeah. And then they have, there are all these stabilizing mechanisms. Like you have these mechanisms that make it so that the, once you're pumping a certain amount of air through the system, the air roll, like the roll doesn't start to move faster just because you pump more air to, into it. It's stable at the certain maximum level. How is it? Is it loud or is it, is it, because I can imagine all this air pumping through there, it makes noises and stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I listened to a few tracks on it uh, on YouTube and it's, it sounds pretty smooth. I mean, one guy, instead of doing the pump, he thought it was boring to do a pump, so he hooked up his vacuum cleaner instead and that made a lot of noise. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. So this is a completely, like, now this is nerd country deluxe. Like, it's this huge community of people that find <laughs> these old pianos and, like, restore them, work on them, and listen to these rolls. I mean, it was actually the last producer of these uh, rolls for this piano was like stopped producing the rolls in 2008. So it's really, really late. Really? Wow. So they were, yeah. And now they, they say they're still in production, but they are not. But the 2008 was the stop. And it's actually a very, very interesting history too. Um, because like in 1901, when the first company started doing this, 
then it was a huge rift because every company made their own kind of kind of tweaks to the system so that you can only play your roles on this yeah, yeah this piano and all that stuff and in the beginning you couldn't do volume control and all the keys really just sounded the same it loud. sounded pretty shitty yeah <laughs> like midi midi like, kind of uh, sound yeah exactly like a midi yeah. version and then it was a uh, actually it was a german uh german engineer uh, ah, german engineering yeah yeah <laughs> who, who like in 1905 uh made refinements to the system that made volume control and touch uh, sensibility through just the form of the perforations so that you could if um, let's say that you have a certain size of the hole the suction hole you could let parts of air through too so you don't have to open the whole thing but you could open parts of it and thus create a less powerful hit by the vacuum hmm. isn't that cool super cool super so cool. he made that stuff and then he, it became so powerful, he really fast just drove the other people out of business for a long time, for several years, like. And then right in like 1913, there was two other startup companies in the US that also started using his adaptive techniques. And then First World War came, and then all American uh, patents owned by foreign companies were seized by the government, and the Welte guy was just out of business. Uh. And then those two other companies became very wealthy. Good story, good story. Thank you, Matthias. Very <laughs> well, very, very well done. That's that's interesting because these things they became really exotic. Like I, I've actually never seen one live in action. I think. Have you? Yeah, I played uh, once on oh. a piano like this. Oh wow! Uh, when we did these, uh, I did this project with uh, recording Goldberg variations on different mm. instruments. Mm. The first instrument we did was an old self-playing grand piano made by Velte. Oh wow! So uh, actually, I know it pretty, pretty intimately. It's a very heavy piano because you have to support the extra length the of the keys oh, yeah. required to install the mechanism. Right. So it's, um, yeah, it's a whole business. Very cool. Thank you, Matthias. Um, moving on to our um, weekly quandary. That is my, uh, I'm up for the quandary this week. That would be something I've been thinking about and I'm sure you have a lot of uh, interesting thoughts to add because we've been talking about it as well. Um, it's just in general, what is the role of a label in the future or even today? Because obviously looking back, a label, which is, a you know, a, a, as we know, a company that is sort of between basically a publisher, a publisher of, 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 of music of um, recorded music and it's sort of between the artists and the um, market in, in 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 recent history or from the rise of the um, of, of of recordings and and the market of selling recordings, the label has been playing a big role in various aspects of the business. For example, curation. So they had a certain power to develop artists and to choose artists and to mm, work on repertoire with artists and, and, and have that sort of curational aspect and role in the in the marketplace which made a lot of sense because that was uh, just a, a very important and necessary member in the in the in the system of uh, distribution of music uh, that was one thing another thing was also just to 
obviously the production means of of technology also to 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 make recordings and to distribute recordings it was sort of a monopoly on on big enterprises but both of these things and and basically everything that 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 made made a a label make sense in the let's say 10 20 years ago is basically gone now as far as i'm concerned i mean it's really easy to hook up with sound engineers or with really good equipment to make absolutely top-notch recordings uh, it's also super easy to distribute music um, on your own like just upload it to spotify or upload it to any other service or you know make your own cd or whatever it's also really easy to do all the direct marketing so you don't really need this kind of um entity between you mostly it even seems quite un, 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 authentic if if that's there and um you're your own curator you can you can you can decide yourself what to do and how to do it and all that things so, so technology has been really liberating mu musicians and has diversified the field so extremely so i really wonder what the role of a label could be or, or if it's maybe just obsolete and we should just um just move on on the other hand of course it's a hard thing of, to expect of musicians an almost impossible thing to ever uh, to expect that they do everything themselves kind of. i mean some do but often it also goes on yeah so if it's, it's a challenge on the quality of because you you know you have to be focused in some way so i i i'm, I'm quite sure there is a role to to be played for for managers in general But um, I, I just really think the old label construct is, is not really working. Plus, just what you see in the marketplace, stuff that is being made by big labels like Deutsche Grammophon or EMI or any of these big players or, um, let's say, uh, dwindling players. I mean, they've been big and they really had... I think the, the, the um, sales have gone down like 70% or something in the in the last 10 years or something like that so so but if you just look at the product it's 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 quite it's quite terrible i mean it's it's just the same over and over again and the same kind of desperate um, attempts to make it sexy or make it or, or, or appeal to certain pop cliches so um i don't see much quality happening there really in at least in the mainstream i'm sure that i'm sure they're really interesting um small labels and there's stuff to be made there but um in terms of the bigger business i wonder where it's going are you because you've been thinking about this also a little i'm, I'm sure what are your thoughts on that yeah I, i of course agree with you i think um what i find a little tricky is the word label because it's mm. uh it is many different things and can be many different things like you have the big monsters that do also in like both management and artist uh, development and like an identity thing and, and branding and then yeah all these marketing things and but you also have historically these labels that are more categorized from having a smaller and very um, precise group of musicians that um, seem to create a certain identity or aesthetic that is uh, linked to that label and and in such a way a, a label could be kind of like a or has been i would say this is for me very much in, in pop and jazz and hasn't been so much in, in classical music i mean you have sam has 
for classical music done a little bit the same where the identity i think of the sound and the kind of philosophy that seems to go into the recordings also comes through in the actual product product in that way but in in general i think uh, the validity of a label today would have very much to do with the validity of the mission is the wrong word but if there is an artistic wish or if there is an actual um, vision for what the label would actually be then then it would change things for me so what could that be that would for instance be when you for instance think about festivals it's very natural to to always at once consider the questions what kind of a festival it is what kind of identity is a brave festival do they do Mm. really fringe stuff or all these kind of things and 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 uh, and a festival or a can be and a concert series or any kind of community that enables artists to to do kind of groundbreaking research is always justified from from that point of view and i think a label could be something similar where you could be a place where that kind of innovation actually happens and i feel it's not it's not been like that right in classical music it's not our history that the label always always um has been a driving force this has been the case with jazz and pop music so it's mm, that's interesting it's different because in in uh, you're given you're given a lot of force through the fact that you can put get like you get people together and you're actually allowed to really put as a producer you're also allowed to really put ideas in the forefront and 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 really spearhead a certain kind of development and in and and here's where it's interesting for me so i i i'm rambling a bit but here's the interesting question is for me that the recording business as we think of it today especially in classical music there's so much being done outside um that um that really touches on all these things but within classical music it's for me very little work being done on the um, reflection on the recording format itself and that sounds a little boring, but it, it's it's not not at all. Uh, I I think it's it's uh, it's rare to like we haven't opened up yet to the possibilities of what a recording could bring to to the work, right? Yeah, to yeah, a, yeah to a work and an interpretive situation, or to to um, to make our this field that we're working and even if it's Bach or if it's Georg mm. Friedrich Haas or or mm. everything. These formats can make everything a lot, lot richer if you approach it in the right way. And since there has been so little work done here, the possibilities are also endless in terms of there are so many walls to break down. And when you sit down and do actual constructive uh, idea work to just get a little overview, they're just the, the, um, yeah, it's really just expanding in all directions just because of the what hasn't been there already so this is this is this seems to be a, a really a low-hanging fruit because um indeed it's interesting to think about it that the producer has such a big creative role in 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 other art forms in jazz in 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 yeah in, in basically almost any art form that could produce any other music art form or pop culture um from also um the producer has a huge amount of influence on the sound on the, the 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 feel of it and in classical music it seems i mean there's some uh, i guess there's exceptions but 
it seems to be an extreme amount of mainstreaming going on because the only goal is really to have a perfect clean sterile recording of it right it's not it's not even the yeah, idea you're... to have an have a own fingerprint really yeah exactly we we when we think classical music recording we always think documentation that that seems to be the overarching especially from the musician's point of view that's really much what we're going for and that has that kind of thinking has now uh, perforated all the way down to every level so that young people bringing new interpretations or new wanting to make a CD or wanting to make their stamp on the market, find their niche, they will all be confronted with that they need to make a recording for that to, to work. So they approach the recording not as an artistic work, but as just a necessity. And that means right. that you have a huge amount of these labels that get young people or young musicians to fully fund the whole process from production mm. and through to printing all the material right where they at the end then get up get with almost nothing or sometimes really nothing <laughs> of the yeah. economic output and and it's really that seems that you then you as an artist you put so much effort into the production of a product that does really not reflect any new thought it's just right. kind of accepted that you need a recording just tick, on the ticking market. the ticking the box that you can play this kind of but not, nothing else yeah I've, i've heard of such incredibly bad deals um like musicians who had to pay for the whole like as you said pay for the whole recording pay for everything like five yeah. thousand euros or something and then Yeah, but and then they I had heard to up to ten thousand euros is not stuff, uncommon. Yeah, yeah, depending on the group. And then, but then as being forced to buy a certain amount of CDs off the label, like something like you have to buy five hundred CDs, like a normal price or something, or like <laughs> in addition, kind of, it's a contractual agreement, and then not even getting any really good cut of the of the sales that are bad anyway. So it's basically giving away so much for free. You're paying. And, and and this sort of lopsided power dynamic is just terrible. I mean, that's and it just doesn't lead anywhere in terms of um, artistic output, and uh, and and it's entirely redundant as far as I can tell. I mean, it's if it's just okay, it's maybe just made to send to agents or to send to uh, to, to to be sent to um, concert promoters or something, and maybe it has that that value, and it seems to work in to some degree, but. Um, artistically and for the for the yeah, enrichment of, 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 of musical life and and also long term to make it a relevant art form or you know it doesn't do anything so I wonder I mean ECM is interesting I think in that field because they have made a I mean it's not strictly classical but they've uh, created a, a interesting um, recognizable brand in terms of sound no Yeah, both sound and they also do they do also commit to other ideals in the process, which is uh, they they are defined in a way. But still, I mean, yeah, I I would just think there is much more work to be done, and I also think there is a huge uh, potential in artists, also in classical music, viewing a recording as a sizable and an important artistic achievement, and not just a documentative tool. So that is actually it's it's uh, yeah, and I think this it it would I I don't I I see why it is this way, but it's hard to. I think again it speaks speaks to this kind of group thinking that of course is very human, 
that we have ex like that we do accept it without question for so long too and kind of because it's it's really uh, then a market being built on the um, gullibility or the um, vulnerability of young classical performers yeah that's that's that sucks i mean i but in a way it's also it's a it's a good situation because there's so much to be done and and it's so obvious that this will be will be done at some point and uh, I'm sure we'll be we'll keep talking about this issue. Yeah, maybe you have to just uh, I'll just mention that uh, one of the reasons maybe you brought it up, Stephen, is that together with the fabulous sound designer Johan Gunther, yeah, um, I'm working right at the moment to try to build out or to find a way that such a label of the future could actually exist. So, but we'll we'll talk more about that in the future. More power to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think we need to move on to recommendations, right? Absolutely. Um, and I have something um, by the uh, composer I've been talking about, Georg Friedrich Haas, who I really like. I liked before I had any idea of what his private life, and his private life has, you know, is his private life. So, yeah. But his music is, is really interesting. Uh, I think often sensual, beautiful um spectral kind of um sound and i particularly love his string quartets both uh, like first and second i know and uh, they're really great and i want to share with you guys string quartet number one and uh, performed by kairos quartet it's on on youtube we'll link to it it's really beautiful you should take the time and have a listen yeah sounds great and you Yes, I wanted to to uh, recommend again. I al always do the same thing. I I wanted to recommend a a video <laughs> on YouTube yeah. of a self playing piano. Yeah. How it, it looks and and how the the engineers really thought of this as a tool to convey classical music in a different way. Yeah. So I I would I will recommend a a video of the Chopin um, revolutionary etude. Where you can also, in addition to seeing the the scroll go through, and you see all the music perforations, and they look very much like these uh, Malinowski music animations that you all know, and um, and at the same time you'll see instructions on the side. Oh, now it gets scary, and here it's so exciting. Like they write text next to the writing, and this very. So I, I'll recommend that video. We'll put the link up there too. Very cool. That will that will do it for this episode of the Super Duper Music Podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. We're grateful and thankful for everyone tuning in. Please uh, find us on iTunes or anywhere you listen to podcasts and always feel free to write us an email at superdupermusicpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, and leave a review or anything uh, you'd like. Share it. Uh, sharing is caring. And we're also on Facebook. That would be Super Duper Music Podcast on Facebook. You'll find us. And thank you for tuning in again. Talk to you next week, Matthias. And yeah, hope that you are whatever I wanted to say. I don't know. Bye-bye, <laughs> yeah. Steven. Bye-bye.